0: Ha 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 Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 11, Episode 19. I'm your host, Otis Jari, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Dale Thompson. Tonight, you'll hear tales of cursed corrective wear, reflective dangers, unfortunate heists, and Wandering Maniacs. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the Moonlit Trail So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin.
1: (laughs) Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality, Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's dot I.com.
0: Being sitting too long in front of the computer screen, too many long nights with only a lamp to keep you company. Not sure if you're seeing a speck of dust out of the corner of your eye, or something at the edge of your vision waiting for you to let your guard down. Maybe you need something to get your sight back in focus. Unfortunately, in this first story of the evening, sometimes your eyewear might be the opposite of corrective. Without further ado, I present to you Spectacles. Edward McAllister enjoyed reading. He was avid about it. He was a borderline bibliophile. He read books, newspapers, and magazines. Ever since he was a child, he read. He couldn't remember a time when he could not read, nor could he remember who taught him to read. It must have been his mother. He knew he had learned to read proficiently, well before other children his age, because when he started primary school which some call elementary school, he was assisting the teacher as a classroom aide, helping other students to develop their literacy skills as well. He was called Eddie at the time. It seems people give young people hypocrisms, or nicknames, growing up like Charles was called Chucky and Robert was called Bobby. Most kids grow out of those childhood names and by adulthood revert back to their given names. This was the case for Edward, who no longer wanted to be called Eddie. He did have a childhood friend, whom he had remained friends with into his adult life, named Michael. To this day, Edward still called him Mikey. Edward and Mikey had just finished lunch together at a local cafe, where they both had a Reuben sandwich, which consisted of pastrami, Swiss cheese, and sauerkraut on rye bread, And they each had an order of crispy fries. They carried on their normal conversation, which included their likes of Major League Baseball, politics, and their best fishing holes. Both men's eyes were bigger than their stomachs. They could hardly move away from the table. They were so stuffed. After every meal, they said they'd no longer revel in gourmandism, yet they most often would. Now it was time to walk off the overstuffed lunch town in which they resided was a bustling little place. There were shops of all kinds a butcher, baker, gun and ammo, hardware, grocers, cigar shop, where you could buy nine good cigars for a quarter, barbers, doctor's office, dry goods store, boot shop, an affordable hat shop, and a whatnot shop, which mainly sold baskets and some kitchenware. And this is where Edward spotted something a little different in the shop window. He'd been tempted to stop at the drugstore for some rheumatism on Vince for his knee. But now this shop window had captured his interest. He thought, now this is something one might find in a general store, or over at Cabane's, Furfur's Chapelries, or even the new Woolworths. But here at the basket shop, it seemed somewhat remarkable. He and Mikey entered the shop and consulted with the shop owner about what had caught Edward's eye in the shop window. The shop owner gladly retrieved the item, and Edward marveled at the craftsmanship. He then tried them on. They were comfortable, sat well on his nose, and were the exact length for his ears. Spectacles. These spectacles were marvelous. He was amazed at how they made everything clear. There was no doubt in his mind, at this price, they were a real steal. And weighing the benefits, he purchased them on the spot. After visiting a few more shops, Edward picked up his medicine from the drugstore and visited the haberdashery for three black buttons for a coat that he needed to mend. Afterwards, the men started home. On the way, Edward explained to Mikey how those new eyepieces were a godsend. Over the years, maybe through eye strain and a hint of asthenopia from reading long hours, or perhaps just from age... Edward had noticed he desperately needed more light to read, and sometimes small print seemed to blur. It originally attributed his slight loss of vision to tiredness rather than the genetic deterioration that often occurs as one gets older. Mikey still had impeccable sights. He had no use for glasses, though he did try them on at Edward's request, only to find the world blurry, and it sort of made him queasy. Edward walked Mikey to his house. Mikey was married with a small child, and it was about dinner time. He graciously invited Edward to join his family for dinner, but Edward declined. He was still full from lunch, and was anxious to get home and do some reading with his new spectacles. Once home, Edward had found the walking had given him a bit of an appetite. Instead of a big meal, he simply ate a raw carrot and brewed a pot of coffee for the evening. He was anxious to settle in for the night and spend it reading one of his favorite authors, William Blake, the poet. Sitting in his favorite armchair, he lit a couple of candles, knowing night would soon fall and he'd need the artificial light if he were going to read. He kept a hanging lantern over his chair as well, but was not yet required to light it at this time of day. His reading this evening was The Continental Prophecies, which was hardly light reading, But Edward loved to indulge in such controversies. He always said, I read everything and believe very little of it. One doesn't have to agree with what he reads. One must enjoy the pleasure and satisfaction of having the ability to read. With a cup of coffee on his side table, Edward put his spectacles on and began to read. This was so amazing. The fact that he was able to see so clearly without effort. His eyes were alive again. "'though he had not known how dead they had become over time. "'If anything is a miracle in this life, "'these spectacles are from heaven,' he thought, "'a swarm of thoughts flooding through his curious mind. "'Nothing in his entire life had been so revolutionary, "'so grand, so advantageous as these spectacles. "'If he had only known years ago "'what a difference they would have made, "'he would have had a pair in every room of his house.' Implemental, practical? Why didn't everyone have a pair? Or two? Or three? What he paid for these spectacles was nothing compared to how salient he found them to be. He read up to the point where the sun began its descent over the horizon, and he lit the lantern and made another cup of coffee. Edward read for what seemed like hours, then sleep crept upon him, and he could no longer retain what he was reading. He knew when he became semi-conscious that it was time to get ready for bed. Edward fell right to sleep the moment his head hit the pillow. He slept deeply without a single memorable dream until he suddenly awoke hearing an incessant rattling in his room. Now fully awake, he could no longer hear the sound that had snapped him from his sleep. He saw plainly it was still nighttime, and obviously it was far too early to get out of bed. Yet the thought occurred to him that, since he wasn't sleepy anymore, he might as well do some more reading. He would nothing better to do. He knew any attempt to force himself back to sleep would be futile. He was not working this week, so he could come and go as he pleased, eat when he wanted to, sleep when he wanted to, read when he wanted to. And reading was what he must now do. Edward put on his glasses. He loved those spectacles. Everything looked so much clearer to him, and he believed they might even improve his looks. Not that he was an unattractive man, but he believed maybe with spectacles he looked more distinguished, more presentable. He certainly had more confidence. He read for a couple of hours and made himself a light breakfast. Afterwards, he felt like a walk. He carried with him a book, The Treaties of Human Nature, by the philosopher and historian David Hume. He thought he'd find a quiet place outdoors to do the reading. The morning air was fresh and pleasant, as it should be on this late spring day. Flowers were blooming, trees were budding. Everything was turning green in nature as the sun was lifting itself up over the horizon. No dew this morning, for which Edward was grateful. This meant his favorite park bench would not be damp and he'd sit there reading until the park began to get busy. He didn't like big crowds. As he sat on the bench, he became distracted. Something drew his attention away from his book on human nature and gravitated to a man walking a dog. He looked like any other ordinary man, and the dog was a respectable breed, not a mutt. The odd thing was, as the man and dog drew closer, the image of the man metamorphosed into something foul, entirely nondescript, For a brief moment, the man's form was simply something diabolic. The brevity of the change was so ghastly that instinctively Edward flinched, forcing a high-pitched gasp from his throat, which did not exactly expel from his mouth. What he saw, or thought he had seen, was the man's face and head shape-shifting in a quick, furtive instant into a white skull, like a frightful tonsure on a crimsoned head. As quickly as the transmutation had occurred, the man's appearance changed back into human form again, and he gave Edward a wrinkled brow expression, snapping Edward from his hypnagogic state. He'd only been entranced with the man for a split second, yet this man had made eye contact, breaking the trance. Though Edward instantly snapped out of the fixation and looked away, he made a point to turn his eyes back toward the man after he had passed him. Everything looked normal to him. Removing his spectacles, Edward rubbed his eyes, believing without a doubt his eyes must be strained. And now, since the sun was up, there must have been some optical illusion. Though stricken with confusion, he returned the spectacles to his face, and he decided to stay put for the time being and rest before venturing on. He was out of sorts after the illusionary event, not being able to rationalize what had just occurred. Two women were approaching, coming through the park, arm in arm. He assumed either mother and daughter, sisters, or best friends. He admired their step and laughed, thinking they must have been sharing good news with one another. Not able to hear them speaking, he strangely noticed he could read their lips from where he sat. He'd never had this ability before now, but he could make out their entire conversation. Though they would have thought their conversing was anonymous to anyone around, Edward could make out every word. They were laughing but speaking about killing someone. Their tongues became fire in their mouths, and flames were dancing on their clothing and hair, but they did not burn. They were consumed in a shining fire, yet were unaffected by the flames living all over them. He closed his eyes, desisted every thought, and shook conclusions from his head then reopened his eyes to see them walk past, oblivious to the fiery hell by which they had been surrounded by. Visibly shaken, unsure how he was able to invade the women's privacy, he removed the glasses a second time and dug into his eyes with his knuckles in an attempt to clear anything causing such fallacious hallucinations. The two men, like the man and the dog, strode past Edward in an ordinary manner, but no evidence of unexplained mutations or evidence of fire. Edward considered what he had just witnessed. Am I ill? He placed the back of his hand upon his forehead to feel for fever. Well, no fever. That's good, I think. He remained profoundly troubled, depressed, and anxious. He was a man of stalwart character. Yet these two instances of the unexplained made him examine his sanity... More people were approaching, most likely either on their way to work or possibly early morning shoppers, hoping to beat the late sleepers to the shops for the better cuts of meat and fresher breads. For a third time, he placed the glasses back on his face, and the appearances of the approaching people began to alter. Some changes were more graphic this time, like an inkblot Rorschach test. There were hybrids of ghoulish, undead vanguard, ominous and sinister with sunken black eyes. A haunting phenomenon. Their faces twisted in a hoary white. He made note of how gruesome their eyes looked, Drooped as if they were wax and their faces were burning. As discursive and non-didactic as his mind had become, he forced himself to remain within his wits. His sobriety could not be questioned, but he was concerned that perhaps he was having a stroke. Emptiness descended into a sympathetic plea over his heart. He'd heard of others having episodes of lunacy out of the blue, but he did not relate this to insanity. He believed he was thinking properly, but wouldn't a man who had lost his mind believe himself to be acting normally? This contradiction now plagued his mind, and his rationale was in question. He processed what he had witnessed and externalized. These must be temporary phenomenological events, not directly associated with his own welfare, and sustainability. Necessitated by trembling misgivings, he opted to leave the park.
1: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
0: Edward's nerves were on edge and with much effort, he attempted to sum up these events by subcategorizing them in an extraneous mental folder of his mind. He felt if these explicit visions continued, he'd have to remain as inconspicuous as possible, seeing that such things might have him dragged away to the loony bin. How had he lost his mind was one question he asked himself. On the other hand, if he'd not gone mad, could these events of dubious darkness be real? Going straight home, he drank a large glass of water and forced some saltine crackers down his throat hoping this combination would settle the sickening feeling, swelling and nodding in his stomach. He pondered with deliberate cause, and the only conclusion he had was, incredibly, there was something uniquely macabre about his new glasses. He only started having these monstrously morbid episodes since he'd purchased the glasses. Could it potentially be the glasses were cursed? How ludicrous, he answered himself. He could not bear many more... In his sights. This was all purely inferential. A knock at his door startled him, snapping him from deep thought. Holding the spectacle in his hands, he supposed there was only one way to find out if these eyeglasses had anything to do with these appalling scenes. He placed them back on his face and went to the door. It was Mikey who had come to visit. Mikey looked normal, there was nothing chilling or ghastly about him. Mikey could read from Edward's countenance something was amiss. What's up, my friend? Look like you've seen a ghost. Edward thought, how ironic. He hesitated before answering, his mind playing out the scenarios of possible answers he could give Mikey. One answer would be, no, everything's fine. Nothing on going on here, just got back from a walk. That would be the safe answer. Or he could answer Mikey with, "These glasses are possessed by the devil, "'and when I put them on, I see blood gore, evil of every kind.' But he did not want to raise suspicions about his mental health and well-being. So he answered Mikey. I went for a walk, felt a little strange at the park, and came back home to get some water. Concerned about his friend, Mikey encouraged Edward to sit, and he brought him another glass of water." "'We are not getting any younger, my friend. "'It's easy to overdo it these days. "'Summer's going to be a scorcher. "'You don't want to have a heat stroke out there.' "'Edward chuckled and sipped the water, wary of what the glasses might reveal next. "'The two sat for a spell, "'talking and planning what to do over the next few days. "'They spoke about fishing, drinking, "'just doing those man things, "'since neither needed to be at work for a week.' Worried and nervous that maybe it was not the glasses, since there had been no episode since Mikey had arrived, he removed the glasses and placed them on a side table. After a little while, Mikey mentioned he needed to mow his yard, and if Edward was up for it, maybe afterward, the two of them could do something. Play chess, head down to the pub for a game of pool, something other than nothing. Edward said, Perfect. Sounds good to me placed the spectacles back on his face and watched his friend leave. He kept watching Mikey as he walked. Then it happened again. At first, as Mikey strode away, he was stepping with a normal gait. When the limp started, Edward noticed Mikey hunching over as if his spine suddenly curved unnaturally. His arms lengthened in an apish manner, and it looked like drops of blood were shockingly dripping from his fingertips. Edward screamed out, Mikey! Mikey did not turn, he continued to walk away, dragging one foot behind him as if he were lame. Edward paused, not knowing what to do next. Was there anything he could do? His only choice was to remove the glasses. And when he did, Mikey once again walked away and appeared absolutely normal. Edward stood at the crossroads of a logical personal disposition, debating on what he should do, or rather could do considered and reasoned all of the evidence at hand. Part of him thought the novelty of the spectacles was too authentic not to use, but he lacked any power within himself to control what he saw, and when he saw it, the other part of him was so repulsed by the malignant images, defeated, he saw no other choice but to give them up. There was no other interpretation or impression to derive from this. His constitution was not strong enough to endure such horrific images and sights. He believed what he was seeing was not only the veritable body that was manifesting the internal struggles of each person, some worse than others, but he saw their intentions, too. Spectacles revealed the sleeping and the awake. This incalculable thought gave him more than just a perfunctory shiver down his spine. It brought the tumultuous human carnage to the surface in nocturnal revelations. The debaucheries and vices which most people hid from their neighbors, Edward could see in clear view. Secrets kept, the lies people told, spectacles unveiled these to the wearer. Their guilty consciences became illuminated. Ruesomeness through the glasses was a reflection of how people were actually coping in their lives. Most of the time, it appeared people were coping and the spectacles revealed nothing abnormal or some small, slight twist. For others who appeared to be at a breaking point, the images were far more graphic. There was a barbarity in some people. A murderous scene would materialize, highlighted with maculation of crimson blood, splattered everywhere with the expiation of the crime yet unsolved, unconfessed, not yet convicted. For these were the misdeeds yet to be carried out, the transgressions of their guilty consciences, manifested in hidden terror and mysterious oppression with impertinent hearts without rest. Some were dangerously soulless, acting out their evil intentions. The spectacles were a doorway into the supernatural malevolence. Edward concluded the scariest thing was not actually the visible atrocities he was forced to view, but that the cursed spectacles held them enthralled. This disturbed him the most. On the other hand, when he had worn the glasses and observed himself in the mirror, saw nothing disgusting or disquieting, he felt reasonably sure he was a good man without vendettas or hate, nor was he terribly troubled in his soul. Unable to cope with these mirrors into one's soul, he returned the glasses to the store that afternoon for a refund. Store owner had no problem with the return and offered Edward a different pair. Edward explained that after he had worn the glasses for a while, he realized the lenses were too strong and they hurt his eyes. He opted not to trade the glasses in for a new pair, but rather he got his money back and made his way home again, free from the accursed spectacles. Later on, Edward and Mikey opted to go to the pub to shoot a few games of pool for a bit. Mikey usually won these games, but this night they split them two games apiece before both agreeing it was getting late and returning to their homes. Upon entering his house, Edward lit a lantern and plopped down in his armchair with a book in hand. That was when he heard a persistent rattling coming from the kitchen. What could that be? He huffed as he made his way around the corner to the kitchen to investigate. The rattling stopped as he entered the room. He stood frozen, listening stringently for the noise to sound again. A minute passed with only the normal breathing of the old wood of the house, and the odd cracking as if the house was stretching. Practically jumped out of his skin when he heard the rattling again. It was a vigorous scratching noise and a whirring rattle. The noise was coming from one of the kitchen drawers. Darn mice, he said aloud as he reached for a pan. He didn't want to smash a mouse with a good pen, but it was the only rodent-killing tool at his immediate disposal. Scratching continued as he crept ever so softly over to the drawer. With ease, he pulled the drawer open, and to his shock and dismay, there was no mouse or even a trace of a murrayed rodent to be found. But what he did locate were the very same spectacles he'd returned for a refund earlier in the day was this possible? He exclaimed, stupefied. Unbelievable, he reacted, exasperated. His arms hung limp at his sides, and only his wide eyes moved slightly. With effort, he closed the drawer again and started to leave the kitchen, when a scratching could be heard again coming from the same drawer. He ran to the drawer, now utterly perplexed and aggravated. No longer was he hesitant. He dropped the glasses to the floor and stomped them with both feet, He cleaned up the broken pieces. The lenses were smashed, and the ears to the spectacles were bent beyond fixing. He swiftly tossed them into the trash bin and made an exit toward his living room. He was stopped cold in his tracks by the sound of scratching. Slowly, he twisted around, looking over his shoulder to see the kitchen drawer already opened. This can't be, he whispered, as if someone might overhear disbelieving what he was seeing and hearing, he could feel the hairs in the back of his neck stand up as the horror intensified. His condition was deteriorating as the hackles pricked his neck. How can an inanimate object be so accursed as to return perpetually? Stiffly moving instead of near-total paralysis, he managed to cross the kitchen to the drawer again to face his antagonist, His thinking was temerariously disordered, as his neck and forehead baked with a swelling heat, but he was compelled to investigate. A catalogue of moments came to his mind in the form of a myriad of memories, memories of loved ones and family. He contemplated. This is the type of things one thinks about in their final moments of life. With an ethereal gaze, palms clammy with nervous perspiration, he peered down into the open drawer. Logical reluctance was not the same as cowardice, he thought to himself. There they were without a scratch, just like new. His spectacles. He acquiesced and withdrew the spectacles from their resting place, never feeling more diaphanous than in this very moment. As he stared at them, he grew waxen and incuriously rigid in the most unconventional awkwardness. His hands began an uncontrollable shaking, as if the mask of Paul had been draped over his terrified face. Were these spectacles something dredged from some antiquated hell? Edward threw them back in the drawer, and backed away defensively, not wanting to become immured in such witchery. His desperate but ineffectual resistance seemed futile. With dubious misgivings, he approached the drawer yet another time and cast a stationary stare down at the spectacles which lay there in plain sight. He knew he only had one choice. Touched by a connotation of being completely denuded, gradation growing, he admitted he had no free will. What were the implications if he were to ignore the spectacles and learn to live with the scratching? He dared not find out placed the eyewear on his face and instantly all of his apprehension and dread suddenly wore away vanishing without the residue of dread it was in a terrible grasp admittedly he could see so much better with these spectacles he would have to rationalize wearing them out it would not be easy but he could not be tormented any longer the need for vigilant circumspection had ended he surrendered to the enchantment never feeling more wholesome Night fell and Edward read volumes with the spectacles on and slept like a baby with the spectacles behind him on his nightstand. In the morning, he arose, washed his face, put on his spectacles, got dressed, had a coffee, and out the door he went, towards a little cafe where he and Mikey would meet up for breakfast every Wednesday. Mikey was already seated, but he'd not even had a cup of coffee yet. "'Good night?' Mikey inquired." very interesting night. Got a lot of reading accomplished, Edward answered. Are you ordering the usual? Mikey knew Edward always ordered bacon and eggs on whole wheat toast. No, I think I'll try something different. Maybe the pancakes, blueberry pancakes, Edward answered, looking up to see Mikey's face. A distorted bloody mess, his flesh split in twos as if he'd been struck by an axe. A little taken aback, but knowing the glasses produced these strange effects, Edward continued talking as if he saw everything the same way everyone else did. When the waitress came to the table, he ignored her zombie appearance and her blacked-out eyes. He ordered the blueberry pancakes, knowing he was forever haunted. This was something Edward did not believe he could ever get used to. Seeing the dead, the mutilated some people walking with broken wings as if they were fallen angels. He eventually surmised, with terrifying revelation, that these glasses you could see people's inner demons, those things of torment people must bear alone. He saw the suffering, the pain, the injustice of their situation in current predicament. It wasn't anything anyone could actually prepare for, but he endured it. Edward thought, in some ways, he was blessed because he could see evil for what it was. He had a better understanding and recognized the suffering that some people, unfortunately, lived with, more intimately than before, without a single soul, to take the weight from them. These spectacles made him a nicer person, a person who went out of their way to help those in need. Edward died at age 62, with Mikey by his side. Edward's short illness was very sudden but he managed to get his affairs in order and say proper goodbyes to his friends and family. He passed quietly and painlessly in his sleep, wearing the spectacles until the end. Mikey died the next day. He'd experienced a massive heart attack. He was found wearing Edward's spectacles. I hope you enjoyed Spectacles by Dale Thompson as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Thompson. That's com slash T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. If you like spooky stuff and you also like music, or maybe just enjoy one or the other, be sure to stop by his official YouTube page and check out his various musical renditions. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that me, Otis Jiry, sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. I once thought that I had a similar pair of glasses that would accidentally show me everyone's worst inner demons. But as it turns out, I was just in a place where everyone really was that ugly and monstrous. Word of warning, be careful where friends send you after you've been drinking most of the night. But if there's one place where we can be both at our most relaxed and at our most vulnerable, look no farther than the humble bathroom. I mean, how many people have gone into one, taken a long hot shower, and not a single axe-carrying psychotic shows up to do them in? Well, aside from your cat. Well, even if nobody comes in from the woods to wreak havoc, some things just have methods that are a little more subtle. Without further ado, I present to you Shadow of Doubt. 1 Corinthians 13.12, Young's Literal Translation, 1898. For we see now through a mirror obscurely, and then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall fully know, as also I was known. We see through a glass darkly irresolvable shadows from immemorial times, like ebony skies creeping in locust fashion, swallowed every star and vanished the sad, waning moon. Joseph Turing was an unassuming, quiet man who lived alone. He stood 5 foot 5 inches tall, or approximately 165 centimeters tall. He was thin. He loved food, but had a high metabolism. His heritage was German, though he had never visited the country. At fifty years old, his eyes had grown sad, giving the appearance of a scolded puppy. When he spoke in his soft, eloquent tones, his voice was strong, but he would always trail off in broken bits and pieces at the end of a sentence. His mind was richly fertile, productive, rich in thought. He was a man of learned ability, an avid reader, and educated by profession. He'd always sought greater understanding and reached for the stars. He'd achieved prominence in academia, but shied away from popularity. Joseph had never married. He used the old cliché, I was married to my work. He tainted a perfectly good one shot of coffee with three sugars and pure cream, drinking up to twelve cups a day. His collection of books and vinyl records was something to boast about, and when he was not reading at home, he was listening to music. Speaking of homes, Joseph had recently shifted houses, or as they say in America, he had moved from one house to another. Joseph was so very happy to have finally gotten out of the cramped, moldy apartment he previously resided in. He wouldn't miss the noisy neighbors above and below, and next door to him, although the Indian couple had been pleasant for the years that he'd lived there, wouldn't miss the fragrance of the curries he often smelled through the thin walls. His new dwelling was much more spacious. He'd bought a two-bedroom art deco-home with a shallow recessed porch that had flat projecting canopy, and he now had a full half-acre to himself, with neighbors far enough away that even their power tools and mowers were faint. The realtor had worked hard to get this property, and when Joseph was presented with the final selling price— he realized his dream of owning his own home was now a reality. After about two weeks of settling into his very own home, things started to become strange. The bathroom had been upgraded from the tired old look of the 30s when the house was built. The rest of the house remained original, with the parapet walls, trapezoidal, zigzagged, and triangular shapes, chevron patterns, stepped forms, "'sweeping curves and sunburst motifs, sleek and bold, geometric in shape. "'The strangeness was actually the updated bathroom, "'which had become completely redesigned, all except the frosted window. "'The window was typical. "'It allowed in sunlight, but blurred all of the images on the other side. "'This opaque window scattered the light, creating a translucent effect. "'It was one evening when the sun had put itself away and the moon had awakened, "'rising into a starlit sky. "'Joseph had visited the bathroom for his evening shower "'when he caught a glimpse of a shadow through the frosted window. "'He was immediately unsettled. "'There should be no one or no thing outside his house, "'in his yard, on his property, at this hour of the night. "'He waited and watched. "'There it was again, "'a fleeting dark image passed by the window "'as if it were pacing back and forth.' Joseph was not a brave man, though he was not a coward. He understood the limits of his physical abilities. This ambiguous figure on the other side seemed as if it was staring into the bathroom. Quickly, and with an unwholesome terror, he flicked off the light switch. The image disappeared. Joseph took a pause to reflect. He then flicked the switch on, and there it was. He immediately turned the lights off, went to the kitchen and retrieved his largest knife from the butcher's block. Normally, a knife in hand would not feel awkward because he was accustomed to cutting up fruits and vegetables. Yet, due to the circumstances, with the possibility he might have to use the knife in a violent way, the knife was awkward in his closed fist. As quietly as possible, he made his way to the front door where he slowly opened it and peered out. There was no other car in his driveway except his own. With considerable dread, he slipped out of the house and made his way to the side, leaning protectively against the wall. As he reached the corner of the back of the house, he argued with himself in great debate if he should take a glance at the back of his house. His concaution stagnated every verdant notion, throwing his stability completely off the page into a prelapsarian time of primitive conjecture within his troubled mind. He uttered a German phrase that he often did when excited or nervous, Sturm und Drang, which simply meant storm and stress. He quickly stuck his head around the corner, it back with the same swiftness. He saw nothing because he had not opened his eyes. He remembered a quote from his reading, "'When a man sees what is not there, he will soon pray for blindness. If blindness does not come, he will pray for death.' "'Nothing is as awful as death. "'I pray for death.' "'Unyielding and determined, "'he forced his down-drawn eyes open "'and took a nimble peek. "'There was no one there. "'The relief was refreshing, "'but the uncertainty remained. "'He summoned it up to imagination "'and returned inside the shower. "'Joseph loved this shower "'because it never ran out of hot water.' he had no neighbor who could control the temperature unexpectedly with a twist of their own tap. The shower restored his frame of mind, and he weighed the events of the evening, now believing he had cleansed himself of the uncertainties, restoring the repose which he had before, before the fluke with the frosted glass. He gave his body a good towel dry and ran a comb through his thinning hair. As he turned to exit the bathroom, his heart skipped a beat. There, on the glass, in undeniable plain sight, was a dark hand pressed against the frosted glass. What did this mean? It was exactly the same symmetry of a human hand. Instinctively, he wrapped the towel around his body, and with gaped mouth, he peered at the smudge on the other side of the frosted glass. His right hand fumbled for the light switch, and when his fingers fumbled over it, being careful not to look away from the frosted, he flicked the light switch off and then back on. Turning the lights on again, he took a step back because now there were two hands, open palm, stretched out fingers pressed against the glass. He flicked the switch off and on again. This time a face appeared. It was the side of a woman's face with a cheek pressed against the glass. He could discern it was female because of the long hair, small hands and from features he could make out that obviously would not normally be those of a man's profile. The face stayed pressed in one spot, while the hands seemed to caress the glass. Although Joseph was feeling sickly, he moved toward the window. He moved as a grief-stricken man. His face deprecated a severely wrinkled frown as a man perplexed in the midst of solving a puzzle face turned and faced the glass, of the nose prominently pushed lightly against it. Joseph was practically mortified by this time, but he pressed on with difficult speculation, dismissing the wistful and restless agitation at his own pensive mood. The image slid its hard body against the glass, its arms, breasts, fingers stretching and flexing, clawing seductively, making light scraping noises with its nails This shadow, the silhouette of this woman, intrigued him, excited him, but the nagging, pulsating throbs of blood in his ears caused pressures on his temples with an intensity like a balloon swelling and about to burst. He had more placid days than this one, certainly. Dizziness embarked on him acutely, and in a euphoric stumble, he was drawn into a calm immobility that soothed his sharp concerns. It was at this time his hand reached the frosted window, placing his palm against the dark outline of the unknown hand. Enormous warmth and ecstasy surged through his body, relentlessly gripping him like a python. The rubicund face glowed, causing her face hair to appear pink and spotty as the oxygen was being cut off from his lungs. It was at the moment of completely passing out that he was bone-shakingly jolted, Whatever force had engaged him disengaged, and he wobbled to the floor like a rag doll. Joseph was drained. He lifted his eyes to the frosted glass, but there was nothing there. The shadow figure had left no trace. Demanding answers for his own peace of mind, emerging emotions foreign to him, he arose. He never knew he possessed such sensitivities. Rattled, but not dissuaded, He stumbled through the house like a madman, not even considering the knife he left back in the kitchen. He stormed outside and around the house. Although there was very little light from a superbly hidden moon, he looked for any handprints on the frosted window. He found none, not a print, smear, nor even one fingerprint. His eyes were adjusting to the lack of light, and he scoured the ground meticulously for footprints No footprints were visible. He got down on all fours to feel the ground with his bare hands, but he couldn't detect a single indentation, and the grass had not been trodden upon. Disturbingly, the grass beneath the window was warm and dry, unlike the damp grass he'd run through to get to the back of the house. He wasn't about to reveal his own insecurities, although his raw, quivering nerves were on display. Joseph returned to the inside comforts of his house and with his thoughts presently undecipherable was curiously depleted of energy and starving. When he entered the kitchen he noticed the knife he had taken with him on his first panicked run to the house. He was thankful he did not have to use it but frustrated that his examination at the backyard had produced no answers. He was greatly discomforted. After he had made a sandwich and poured a glass of milk, he scoffed down the meal as if a man famished. The strangeness of the event played in his mind. In such a way, he developed a voracious appetite. One sandwich was not enough to get his energy back. He retrieved a large bag of chips from the cupboard, and creamy onion dip from the refrigerator, and in a few short minutes, he emptied the entire bag. Feeling the need to be set free of his trepidation, he pensively made his way through the hallway to the bathroom door. He couldn't see the frosted window from the doorway. Stretching his neck out, craning it like some odd fowl, he strained and leaned forward, and then the window came into view. He chuckled to himself because it was merely a frosted window, and no dark impressions were apparent. Shrugging his shoulders worn out from his mental retrospection, crude tabulations that didn't add up, the aftertaste of the onion dip was not as pleasant to his palate as when first consumed. He decided it was time to brush his teeth. As he brushed his teeth, removing the taste from his mouth, the mirror held a lucid reflection of the frosted window just over his right shoulder. Joseph rinsed his mouth, keeping one eye in the mirror in the window. He spat for the third time, dropped his head down to splash water on his mouth, and when he raised up, with water dripping from his chin, there it was again, the dark impression of a hand on the other side. Fraught with horror, he mindfully waited in his weirdness and pathos, holding his breath in some sort of self-taught ritual, Conceivably, if he did not breathe, the thing he feared would simply ignore him and disappear. But it did not disappear. A second hand appeared, pressed lightly against the glass as before. Consequently, the bathroom light dimmed and a light appeared outside, which illuminated the thing on the other side of the glass. Moreover, the light revealed a full silhouette as the thing removed its hands and took a step backward. Still seeing this revealed through his mirror, Joseph saw a full dark female body motioning to him with one hand as if to beckon his company. Helplessly confused and mortified by this exasperating mysterious figure, Joseph could not control himself, and he turned from the mirror to the window. Instead of resisting, he waved, and in return the female figure waved back, unable to make out a single feature of the female. He could only imagine from the shape of her body and the long flowing hair that she must be beautiful. It was now ungoverned by his own willpower, and he didn't care. It was fully committing to the excursion of the day, allowing this foreign influence to impede his rational thinking. He deliberately lost his inhibitions and touched the frosted glass. with a total lack of judicious presence... He placed both hands upon the glass. The female image, shrouded in bleak darkness, approached and laid her hands against his. A powerful light, magnified brighter than any Joseph had ever seen, lit up the entire window in such a manner as to reveal the facial features of the female on the other side. She appeared as beautiful as Joseph had imagined. The reality was greater than he could dream. Feelings of love, warmth, comfort, and peace cascaded from the top of his head through his body to the soles of his feet. His consternation had completely diminished, there he stood, illogically, hand to hand, with this alien being. In this critical moment, Joseph cared not if he lived or if he died as long as he could touch her. When Joseph awoke, he was cold and shivering. He was drenched in cold sweat and, lying, curled into a ball on the hard bathroom floor's tessellated tiles. The incomprehensible had left him lethargic, overwhelmed, and with partial amnesia as to exactly what had happened. He no longer saw the intense light from outside. It was morning, and the female shadow and all of her allure was no longer there. Joseph rolled his body up onto all fours then gingerly pulled himself up to his feet. His back was sore. He had a stitch in his side. His head wobbled like his brain was loose, and smashing around in his skull. With blurred vision, he went to the sink and splashed cupped handfuls of cold water onto his face. The Cold water was a relief for his hands, as this was when he realized the pain at first. The tips of his fingers and palms were burnt as if he held over a fire. "'an insatiable appetite gripped his gut "'like a bear emerging from a winter's hibernation. "'He realized it was morning. "'The darkness was gone. "'The female was no longer in the frosted glass, "'and his starvation took predominance "'over his scorched fingers. "'Practically running to the kitchen, "'he fed like a wild hog on an entire box of cereal, drank the remainder of the milk, "'and he swallowed a dozen raw eggs.' This did not satisfy his famished condition. Like a man starved on a deserted island or a prison camp, he couldn't control his starvation. His feeling of malnutrition was met with the fifth deadly sin of gluttony. When Joseph had devilishly devoured practically every edible thing in his house, he collapsed on the sofa, and there he remained comatose until night were visited. The mayhem of the previous night, and the indescribable events of the morning were behind him now as he awoke with nausea and heartburn, eating away at his esophagus with a burning acid reflux from the pits of hell. Hardly remembering what all had occurred, he felt ashamed. He felt dirty, as if something unholy and intimate had been forced upon him. The Disgust of violation, the uninvited maltreatment, the unsolicited ravishment, The profane experience was unimaginable. What sort of surreptitious encounter had he been through? Was it spirit? Poltergeist? Alien abduction? No answer he generated would suffice. Joseph loathed himself at this moment. He avoided the bathroom, went to the bedroom, put on a change of clothes, and then ventured to the garage. There he found a hammer hanging on a hook over his workbench and got himself a pair of safety gossels for good measure. He thought if this was a spiritual thing, frosted glass was his gateway. He needed to make sure for his safety he would not be assaulted again, whether by demon or extraterrestrial. He was a man on a mission and marched himself into the darkened bathroom where the frosted glass window was hardly visible. Night had come. "'This is when she appeared. He was confident in his decision "'to smash the glass once and for all. "'He flicked the light switch, and there she was, "'in all of her contradiction "'of exotic, darkened vixen and her splendid apogee. "'Joseph hesitated. "'Why? "'He didn't know. "'He raised the hammer up over his head. The "'Figure on the other side of the glass.' "'placed both hands on the glass as she had done before. "'Joseph called to the figure. "'Don't make me do this. Go away!' His reluctance was a fear he may never feel again, "'the way she made him feel now. Yet the logical side of him realized she was destroying him, "'and she must go. "'The figure refused to or could not answer. "'She waved her hands against the glass "'and then pressed her body against it as she had done before.' Joseph began to become overwhelmed with erogenous sensations, a prurient desire with a burden of undeniable amatory affection for this wonderfully dark creature with whom he was presently wedded. While still in his cognitive mind he resisted, or tried to, by biting his lip until he tasted blood, the salt and metallic taste which reminded him of iodine practically sickened him. The paroxysm of fear lingered, as deplorable as it was, causing an unattractive scowl to be imprinted upon his face. The oratorical running through his thoughts screamed warning and caution at all costs. Interposing hysteria was shouting in his brain to get out of the house, yet his desire swelled within him like a dam about to burst. Temptation was strong. A female entity lured and seduced him through a transmission of energy from her hands, through the frosted glass, into his fiber. The glass became more opalescent, changing into prismatic prisms until that place where she was coming from coexisted in Joseph's world with impenetrable darkness. This was the consequential apex, the finality of it all was unveiling. The apotheosis. The moment, the last thing Joseph felt was indefinite sensitivity, and he shook with eagerness, smothered in an impenetrable darkness, fathomless, implacable, like an enuera at the heart of the dead, intangible to the living, absence of breath, no longer able to defend himself. Joseph was lost in the ebb and refulgence, cocooned in the realms of phantasmagoria. Slipping forever into irretrievable oblivion. Into Joseph's world, a shadow from the Neverworld stepped through the window and over the lifeless body of Joseph, who had been the conduit of its existence in the world of man. I hope you enjoyed Shadow of Doubt by Dale Thompson, as performed by yours, true. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Thompson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. His growing collection of stories can be heard debuting on this show. But if you seek something a little less scary, maybe only a little less, visit his YouTube page for some musical entertainment. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that me, Otis Gyre, sent you. It would mean a lot to me. As a reminder, if you decide to give tonight's talented author stories a read, please consider leaving him a kind review and a quality review. Or something like that. Or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know that you heard about them on this program and that me, Otis Jerry, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure that would be much appreciated as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jarvie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep. If you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's alright. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>